I'm a pretty bad swimmer, if we're being totally honest. Yeah, um, no, I'm a terrible swimmer. One of my most embarrassing stories. So this was college. I guess we graduated. It was senior summer. We're in the Connecticut River. We're swimming. I think I'm doing like an elegant backstroke. Like Michael Phelps <laughs> owning it. So <laughs> yeah. I guess the police get a woman is drowning report, but oh they come God. down to the shore and just say like, is one of you drowning? Are you okay? And I'm like mortified. But I'm like, yes, I'm fine. But also like, what if I had been drowning? Your approach is to just yell from the riverbanks? Like, that's not helpful. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. Tomorrow is election day in California. Voters will decide Governor Gavin Newsom's fate in the fourth ever recall election of a governor in U.S. history. We'll take a look at the latest polling there and check in on some other elections around the country. Democrats are also facing off in primaries for mayor of Cleveland and Boston on Tuesday, and Trump has formally weighed in on the closely watched primary election facing Representative Liz Cheney in Wyoming. We're also going to explore the effectiveness and politics of vaccine mandates. Last week, President Joe Biden dramatically expanded federal requirements for vaccination amongst federal employees and contractors, as well as people working at private companies with more than 100 employees. He had previously said he would avoid taking such a step, but now that he has, what does history tell us about how well these kinds of mandates work? Are they legal? And do Americans want them? Here with me to discuss our politics editor, Sarah Frostenson. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Galen. Also here with us is senior elections analyst Nathaniel Rakich. Hey, Nathaniel. Hey, Galen. Later on in the show, our senior science writer and legal reporter will join to discuss vaccine mandates, and we are going to get to tomorrow's elections in just a minute, but let's begin with our favorite question, good use of polling or bad use of polling. So Democrats are currently in the process of writing and internally debating a multi-trillion dollar social programs bill. The last time the two of you, Nathaniel and Sarah, were on the podcast, Nathaniel, you mentioned that it was a popular bill, overwhelmingly. And Sarah, you questioned the extent to which that might be true. And I mentioned that we would discuss it in a future episode. So that future episode is now. We have a good or bad use of polling focused on it. So here's the poll. An August poll from Data for Progress and Invest in America suggests net support for that bill is plus 40. So 66% of respondents supported it and 26% opposed it. Of course, Data for Progress is a progressive polling outfit with a B rating in 538's pollster ratings. The question they asked is as follows, and bear with me because it might be the longest polling question I have ever shared on this podcast before. Quote, some lawmakers in Congress are proposing a $3.5 trillion investment plan that does the following. Invest in improving the quality and lowering the cost of long-term care for seniors and people with disabilities. Expand Medicare benefits to cover hearing, vision, and dental care, as well as lowering the eligibility age to 60. Allow Medicare to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. Universal pre-kindergarten for all three- and four-year-olds. Modernize the electricity grid and increase the use of clean energy. Extend the expanded child care tax credit, which provides support to parents to help with the cost of raising a family. To pass it would require the use of a non-standard procedure called reconciliation that allows legislation to pass the Senate with a simple majority. Do you support or oppose this investment plan? Okay, so they go on to ask about other provisions within the bill, but this is like the main question that piles on most of the provisions. 
Is this a good or bad use of polling? I think it's a fine use of polling at this point. Okay. As listeners heard, the description for this question was quite exhaustive, as Galen was highlighting in terms of what they ran through. But in looking how the question was phrased to respondents, it seems pretty neutral to me. You know, one thing we observed, for instance, when looking at polls for withdrawing troops from Afghanistan was pollsters who framed that decision as President Biden's choice versus just the decision to remove troops from Afghanistan and not making sure that that was clear that it was Biden's decision. There was a difference in how respondents answered that poll. You know, this poll here, for instance, just runs through the policy plan, doesn't attribute it to Biden, doesn't attribute it to Democrats. That said, we do see the familiar partisan split here. I think most people plugged in kind of have a sense of that. And other polls, not just this one, but Monmouth, Hill-Harris, they've also shown a partisan split on this. But the reason why I think it's like a fine use of polling is because it really is in line with the other polls we see on this question. And to be clear, they're phrased very differently, but a Monmouth poll also conducted in July found 63% support and 35% oppose it, which is roughly in line with what Data for Progress asked even though it was much wordier and more detailed too in terms of what's actually in the bill. One thing I would say I would have loved to see is individual support for each of the measures in the bill. Because one thing I think we haven't seen yet and what I'm keeping an eye on is, are certain measures more popular than others? Because remember with the Affordable Care Act, a lot of it was popular except the individual mandate. That was widely unpopular. Does something similar happen here with this infrastructure bill? Understanding which proposals are more popular than others, I think would be enlightening here. And I should say they did some of that in the polling in Data for Progress. They break it out a little bit. I don't think they break out every single one. But yeah, go ahead, Nathaniel. I think Sarah nailed it. I think this is a pretty good use of polling on balance. Some of the wording, they did kind of spend a lot of time about the benefits of the bill and didn't give anything to the other side, but that isn't necessarily some huge sin. But yeah, I think that generally the description was neutral, as Sarah said. But I think in general, philosophically, it's a good use of polling across all different ways of asking the question. I think it's valuable to have this wide spectrum of this data for progress poll that is giving a huge amount of perhaps unnecessary detail. And then like the Monmouth poll, I believe that Sarah mentioned is on the other side of the spectrum. And it didn't even mention the dollar tag number, the $3.5 trillion number. It just called it a plan to expand access to healthcare and childcare and provide paid leave and college tuition support. And like Sarah said, the results were the same. Quinnipiac poll did the same thing kind of in between. In fact, Quinnipiac said, do you support or oppose a $3.5 trillion spending bill on social programs such as childcare, education, family tax breaks, and expanding Medicare for seniors? I think if I had to choose a wording, I think that Quinnipiac poll is kind of in the Goldilocks sweet spot there. But the fact that all of these polls had roughly similar results just gives me confidence that this is truly how Americans feel. And I think that we would only kind of be able to be confident in that if we had this wide spectrum of different wording. Yeah, I'm a little surprised, actually, that you're both supportive of this use of polling, because honestly, when I read this poll question for the first time, I couldn't tell you the information in the first half of the question by the time I had finished reading the second half. And I'm even already familiar with the outline of these programs. When you're listening to this over the phone, are you actually absorbing all of this information? Where do you draw the line in terms of how much detail you should give someone when you're polling them about policy? 
So I think a key point here is that this is an online poll, I'm pretty sure. Data for Progress tends to do its polls online or by text message and not by phone. So I would agree if a phone pollster gave this amount of detail, that would be a different kettle of fish. And I think that would be confusing. But I think when you have it on a screen, I think it makes it a lot more acceptable. Yeah. And clearly, I should have done my my homework a little bit more before. You're right, Galen, that they didn't break out all of the specific proposals, but they did do a number, which I think is also helpful to kind of reinforce what's in this bill and understand as well, like what are the fault lines in terms of what's popular. For instance, supporting more long-term care for seniors and people with disabilities that got overwhelming net support at plus 69 percentage points, whereas carving out a pathway for undocumented immigrants that only got plus 29 points net support. So I think we're already starting to see with these proposals a list of variants in terms of where people actually stand on them and what would be popular. Because keep in mind, this still hasn't been written, which I do think then, if there is one negative thing about this poll, it's that we really still don't know what is going to be in the bill. And that $3.5 trillion price tag that we keep talking about is really unlikely to pass as well. Mansion and Cinema have both balked at that and will ultimately get a huge say in what the price tag is for this bill. Do you guys think that in reality, the net approval rating for this go-it-alone social programs bill will be plus 40? That sounds kind of crazy to me. And in fact, you know, when Monmouth asked respondents in the poll that you mentioned that has similar results to this one, would you support this spending bill if it didn't receive bipartisan support? Only 42% of respondents in that scenario said that they supported the bill. So I'm wondering if this is all so abstract that it's not even relevant to the reality of American politics, like plus 30 net support for a pathway for undocumented immigrants. Is that what we truly think would be where the public lands if this were debated in public? I think it depends. So first to the bipartisan point, I think that is the awarding that departs more from the baseline. I think that's clearly putting a finger on the scale in a way that the Data for Progress poll didn't or didn't as much. And I also think that Americans have different perceptions of what bipartisan means. Right? We've talked about this, right? As like, you know, does bipartisan mean getting Susan Collins to vote for it? Does it mean getting 30 Republicans to vote for it? Does it mean Biden's definition of no Republicans vote for it, but some Republicans, people support it? Actually, there was an article or a study I read recently, and I'm forgetting where, so I apologize for not giving you the proper credit, but that said that partisans are actually not very good at telling what is bipartisan or not. Like a lot of Republicans think that their party supports certain social programs and things like that. They don't and and vice versa for Democrats. And I think people, they say, I have this partisan identity, therefore my party must support anything that I support. But I think to your point, Galen, I think a lot will depend on how the debate unfolds. We had a story on the site that found that the more a bill gets debated, the less popular it gets. And so I think that if this turns into a several month saga where it's getting big headlines and Republicans are always popping up on cable news saying how bad the bill is, then yes, the support will come down to the normal partisan baselines that we're seeing. But if it's a relatively smooth process or if other news events are more important, like COVID or something like that, I could see something passing somewhat uncontroversially among the public was still with 60% support. Plus 40 is, I think, a different story. The plus 40 was because it was roughly like 60 to 20%, right? And that means that there was a fair number of undecideds. But like a 60-40 split, I wouldn't be shocked at. 
Nathaniel's right, too, on the bipartisan front. I thought that was curious wording from Monmouth because bipartisanship, if you ask that of voters, they overwhelmingly are like, yes, I support that. But as Nathaniel was saying, they don't have the same definition. It's one party, preferably not their party, who needs to give more in that process. And, you know, the other thing I think to push back on a little is Monmouth has polled since March what support has looked like for the stimulus bill that was passed earlier this year. And the numbers really haven't budged much. They've hovered in the like 60% range, combining strongly support and somewhat support for that bill. So I think it could be a similar issue here with the infrastructure bill in the sense that a lot of what's in it is popular and we won't necessarily see that much movement. And it won't matter either that it's being passed through budget reconciliation or only one part really supporting it, as was true with the COVID-19 stimulus bill. The flip side, though, is Biden's approval rating is really currently at the lowest that it's been. So the pressures here for Democrats moving into debating this bill, I think, are a lot higher than they were earlier in the year around the stimulus for COVID-19. We really haven't seen debate on this. I think Republicans, as Nathaniel was suggesting, they will go particularly hard after this, because the other thing to keep in mind is the debt limit and renewing the deficit so that we can borrow more money is also going to be up for debate while Democrats have a really ambitious spending plan. So that's going to be complicated for them. And I also think, as we saw with the Affordable Care Act in 2010, you're going to see a lot of intra-party fights among Democrats on this bill. How far to the left should they go? What should receive more funding? How do they actually you know, package this bill? What does human infrastructure mean? But right, I do think the fact that this would be passed through budget reconciliation isn't necessarily necessarily a bad death knell for this bill. Essentially, that's what happened with the COVID-19 stimulus bill earlier this year. It happened with the GOP tax cuts when they were in power and Trump's administration. So I don't think that process necessarily carries as much risks for them. Nathaniel, you mentioned at the start of the conversation that this polling question that we mentioned from Data for Progress doesn't really include any of the downsides or criticisms that are likely to be made against this package. Do you think that maybe this question or another set of questions would improve our understanding of where the public might land on this if it included things like ways that taxes might be increased or increase the debt or deficit or inflationary issues, things like that, to give us a better sense of maybe what the public thinks given any possible negatives? Yeah, I do think that including that would have given people the chance to kind of assess all sides of the issue and, again, contribute to this corpus of polling that we have that, oh, you know, when you frame it this way, it is X percent popular. And when you mention some of the diet downsides, it falls to this or maybe it doesn't fall at all. That would be useful knowledge. But yeah, I'm not necessarily saying even that Data for Progress should have done that. But like, I would like to see some pollster do that just to add to our corpus of knowledge on this question. And I do think the question of like how it will be paid for is going to be an important one. And particularly given what we've talked about previously about how support has been pretty popular for either measures that tax the wealthy or continue to tax corporations at a higher rate. I think that will be an interesting dynamic in terms of how does that play to voters when they think about some of the provisions in this bill and understanding how they'll be paid for. I think that will be a question that people have as this moves through Congress. And of course, we will be tracking it here. Let's move on and talk about tomorrow's elections. But first... Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. Tuesday is Election Day in California, although many Californians have already voted because every registered voter in the state received a mail ballot. As of today, 538's current polling average of the gubernatorial recall shows 58% of Californians wanting to keep Governor Gavin Newsom and 41% wanting to recall him. So we're going to take the opportunity to talk about some of the final data coming in on this race. We're also going to talk about some of the other elections that I mentioned at the top To kick us off here, this race looked competitive just a month ago. Would either of you still describe it that way? No. (laughs) You're right. In August, essentially, we were seeing this as a toss-up. Nathaniel and Jeffrey dug into this a lot more. And, you know, this was in large part due to one poll from Survey USA that showed Californians in favor of recalling Newsom 51% to 40%. But I should say that even if we were to remove that poll from our polling average, it still would have been a close race with the recall failing by fewer than four points. And that was as late as of August 21st. So this really was a race in which we thought it was a lot more competitive, closely tied than it currently is. And that seems to be in large part, I'd be curious to hear a little bit more from Nathaniel on this, but turnout. We thought Democrats maybe weren't going to be, or at least polls were suggesting they weren't going to be as enthusiastic about turning out while Republicans were really jazzed. But that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. And seems as if given, you know, how blue California is, this just isn't an election in which Newsom is in as much trouble as we thought. Right. As you mentioned, Sarah, I don't think that the race was ever tied, as the polling average suggests, because of that one poll that pretty clearly seemed like an outlier. And in fact, Survey USA very admirably, I think, you know, and transparently put out in their next poll, they offered some theories as to why the methodology of that first poll may have been off. But of course, in for our polling averages, our polling averages are pure descriptive records of what the polls have said over the course of the campaign. And so the poll is going to stay in there and it says what it says. But personally, I think that the race was never tied, but you know, within single digits. Um, but we have seen Newsom come out to this, what, 16-point lead now over the last few weeks. And I think it is because of activation of California's Democratic base. I think you saw very consistently in these polls back in like July that showed that single-digit race that you saw Republicans saying they were more enthusiastic about voting than Democrats. And you saw the samples of some of these polls were not nearly as Democratic as California is on the whole, which suggested kind of this turnout and enthusiasm imbalance. And I think what happened over the last few weeks is you had Gavin Newsom spending over $30 million in ads, which I think had to have drilled the existence of the election and the importance of the election into Californians' heads. And also people received their ballots. This is an all-male election or a predominantly male election, I should say. And so I think this is a weird timing for an election. Nobody expects an election in September of an odd year. And maybe people didn't realize there was an election, so they weren't responding to polls or saying at least that they weren't going to vote. But then once, you know, over the last few weeks, once it became clear, oh, this is an election, oh, this is an important election, 
election, I should vote in it. The numbers have looked a lot more like the California we're all familiar with. Newsom winning perhaps by 20 points, very similar to his 2018 margin. I think it's really a story of activation of voters who initially weren't likely to vote, but now it looks like turnout is going to be pretty representative. So we are going to dig into this race a lot more as the results come in on Tuesday. We're going to have a live blog. We'll be sharing some videos on our YouTube channel, et cetera. So we'll talk about it a lot more then. I just want to get a sense before we move on to some of these other elections of what viewers should have in mind as they're watching results come in tomorrow. Like how soon could we know the results? Is this the kind of situation like with the November election in 2020 where there could be a red or blue shift? What should we know as we prepare to watch the results come in Tuesday night? Yeah, people should definitely be prepared for some weird results. You know, again, because it's a mail election, this is going to take several days to count all of the ballots. In California in 2020, only about two thirds of the vote was counted on election night. And then it took actually several weeks to count all the remaining votes. It shouldn't take that long this time because ballots are actually due a week after the election instead of several weeks after the election, which was a pandemic era extension that people got in 2020. But nevertheless, the results on Tuesday night are not going to be final. And I think what probably people can expect. So California, first they count all of the early and mail votes that were cast the weekend before the election, I believe. And those are likely to be Democratic leaning because as we know, Democrats tend to cast their ballots by mail. Then California in the wee hours of Tuesday night, Wednesday morning, they'll count the in-person election day votes. And there probably won't be too many of those, but they'll probably be disproportionately Republican because again, because of President Trump's unfounded claims of voter fraud, uh, Republicans have felt need to vote in person instead of by mail recently. And then over the next few days, we can expect the late arriving mail ballots to count. Historically in California, those have favored Democrats and moved races as many as five or six points in their direction. But in 2020, we didn't see that actually. It was more muddled. So I'm not going to make a firm prediction about that. But I do think, you know, if you're just tuning in at like 30 minutes after the polls close and you say, wow, Newsom's really leading by a lot, that could be because that first dump is going to be Democratic leaning. But then later on in the night, it will maybe be more representative. And by Wednesday morning, I think we'll have probably a good idea. And if these polls are anywhere near accurate, Newsom will probably be ahead by a large enough margin that it will be possible to call the race. Nathaniel had hit on this, um, and we wrote this up in our preview of the race as well, but we just caution that while that margin is quite large, this election is unusual in the sense that it's scheduled at an irregular time, and it's also conducted primarily by mail, and so there could be a larger than usual polling error. There's been analysis looking at that. The 2003 gubernatorial election which was a recall in which Gray Davis was recalled. Arnold Schwarzenegger then became governor. Polls missed the final result there by nine points. That said, if there was a miss on the scale of the 16.6 point, that's quite large. But, you know, former 538er Harry Enton had looked at this for CNN over the weekend. And he has found that there have been polling average misses by 15 points or more. But to put that into context, it's four gubernatorial races since 1998 out of 243. So again, to give listeners here a sense of what could happen on Tuesday, you know, it's possible that this race is a lot closer than the polls suggest, but we still would be talking about a really large polling error at this point. So plenty to keep in mind as folks tune in Tuesday night for the California gubernatorial recall. Also on Tuesday night, there are going to be mayoral primary elections in a few cities around the country. 
There's one in Boston, Cleveland, Toledo as well. There are also other elections Tuesday night in Tennessee and Iowa, if you're really keeping track, but we're going to focus on just a couple here. So, Nathaniel, you just moved from Boston to Philly. However, you are still the most Boston-proud person I think I know. So (laughs) tell us about Boston. I guess it's a little bit different there because this is a nonpartisan election and then there's going to be a runoff. So this isn't a primary in the way that we usually think of it. It's like a jungle primary. So how do things look in Boston? Well, Boston is a lovely city, Galen, let me tell you. And I'm wicked sad to have left. Frankly, we'll debate that another time off air. Mm -hmm. But no, you know, I think the most notable thing about the Boston mayoral race is that throughout its long and illustrious history, Boston has only ever elected white male mayors. And the four front runners for mayor this time around are all women of color. So it's going to be an historic election, basically, no matter who wins. So it's, as you might imagine, in a city as blue as Boston, a race to the left. You have three progressive candidates, I would say. Although in kind of a local race, you know, I do want to mention that it's not clear who's like the most progressive, right? There's some issues where one person is the most progressive and then other issues where another person is the most progressive. And there's lots of parochial issues at play. But the three candidates that I would characterize as progressives are the overall frontrunner, Michelle Wu, who is an at-large city councilor who has Elizabeth Warren's endorsement. She is considered a protege of Elizabeth Warren. You have acting mayor Kim Janey. She was the city council president and who took over when Marty Walsh, who's now the secretary of labor and was a former mayor of Boston, when he left office, Janey kind of assumed office in an acting capacity. And then you have Andrea Campbell, who is another city councilor. On the moderate side of the spectrum, although Again, I think this is an interesting appellation, but the quote-unquote moderate lane is being occupied by Anissa Asabi-George, who's another city councilor. She's a close ally of former Mayor Walsh, and I think you can expect her to inherit a lot of his support. But, I mean, they're not moderates like a Joe Manchin or something like that. You know, again, this is all relative. It's still Boston, a very blue city. But I think what's notable is that what is on the left and what is progressive has has really shifted. But I think the main marker for what makes Asabi-George the, the moderate candidate in the race is that she's the one person who has opposed the idea of defunding the police or taking police funds out of the budget. And all other three have. Right. It's interesting to me that you said that, you know, it's Boston, it's a blue city, so of course it's a race to the left, which maybe without looking at other elections this year, you might have assumed, but, you know, we covered the New York mayoral election pretty thoroughly on this podcast, and it was clearly not a race to the left, right? I mean, While initially there were people who came out strongly towards the left end of the spectrum, by the end of the race, people were moderating and the candidates who were the most outspoken progressives did poorly. And they were moderating away from these positions of defunding the police. For example, Eric Adams, who ultimately won, has a line during his campaign where he talks about, you know, you can't like tax the rich too much because then they'll leave and we won't have any way to support our social programs here in New York City and things like that. Very different from what you might expect from a race to the left. So is Boston different? Yeah, that's a great point. Yeah, I think so. I think that Boston is probably more progressive than New York. You know, it has a lot of the white progressive activist space. You know, there Boston is a whiter city than New York City is. In addition, you know, local politics has moved to the left lately. You know, just look at Ayanna Presley's election, for instance. So Janie and Campbell are two of the racist progressives, and they are both black women who represent the black parts of the city. And so, you know, in a way they kind of are playing the role that like a Jumani Williams played in New York. Uh, This is a very niche reference for people who aren't from the Northeast, but you know, he's a black man who's also progressive in New York. And I think that 
Adams was a moderate black man, but we saw in the 2008 lieutenant governor's race in New York that those same black areas that voted for Adams still were pretty supportive of Williams. And so I think maybe in a way that because the two black candidates are putting themselves as progressive, that provides more room on the progressive side. I'm not sure. But Wu is long, you know, her progressive bona fides are very good. Again, like she has this long association with Warren. And then you have the one candidate who hasn't made that move to the left in a Sabi George, who's hoping that she can consolidate that moderate vote, which she could definitely do. You know, it's a really interesting and close race. So it looks like from the polls that Wu is going to finish first, but it really is a free for all for second place. And of course, as you mentioned, Galen, the top two candidates will advance to the November election. So we could end up having a progressive versus moderate battle. We could have a battle between two progressives. It'll be really interesting. Nathaniel's right, and this is something we've talked about before on the podcast in the sense of right now, this progressive narrative and like how they're doing in different races, I do think is really hard to suss out. But one thing I've been really surprised about in the Boston race is Wu's surge. You know, Janie has been acting as the acting mayor there and has gotten, you know, this was a globe suffolk poll but really high marks in terms of her job performance 61% in their most recent poll but interestingly you know she's in a solid race now for second that hasn't necessarily translated to support. It could be because there are multiple black candidates running in this race, as Nathaniel said, and that could be dividing some of her support. Though the poll from Suffolk did show that Janie has a large amount of support among black voters, as well among voters without a college degree and leads with those 65 and older. Wu, on the other hand, I think does breaking into the crosstabs there fit into a very narrow progressive mold in the sense of she's winning with people who've lived in the city for less than 10 years. She's winning with people who have a master's degree or higher, people who self-identify as very liberal and voters from 18 to 34. So I think it's gonna be a question of, this is going to be a lower turnout race. Who is it that turns out here in Boston? Nathaniel had mentioned earlier that Boston is a whiter city than New York. And you know, at this point, a lot of white voters are decided and Wu leads them 39%, followed actually by Sebe George at 22%. So if those are the voters that turn out in Boston, you know, maybe it is Wu and Asabi George and not the acting mayor, Janie, now, which I think would be kind of, at least for me, not following this race as closely, a bit surprising given the high marks that Janie has gotten in the job. Yeah, it's really interesting. Janie hasn't gotten much, if any, incumbency advantage, which, of course, as we've written, if you are an appointed incumbent or you weren't elected to the office in your own right, you tend not to get that. But she did run into a little bit of controversy when she compared a requirement for needing vaccination cards in order to enter like restaurants and bars. She compared that to showing your papers. And, you know, that might have hurt her a little bit. But I also think that Wu, I think she deserves a lot of credit herself. I think that she is kind of similar to Warren in a way. She has managed to be progressive, but also kind of like establishment friendly. She has a good amount of institutional support. She's been on the city council longer than the other three. So even though she she actually herself is a transplant to Boston, she was born in Chicago and she came there for college. She does seem to have the best grassroots relationships and support. And maybe that is why she's leading, but also the demographic. I think are key as well. All right. Well, we will see what happens there. Let's talk about the mayoral primary in Cleveland before we get to the Wyoming House primary. It's an interesting mayoral race going on in Cleveland. Give us some of the details, Sarah. Yeah. So in that race, it's another top two situation in the sense that this is the primary. We'll have the general in November. 
But unlike Boston, where we have some front runners and kind of a sense of where the race could end up, it's a real melee in Cleveland. The four-term mayor, Frank Johnson, has said he's not running, so this is his successor. And I wasn't able to find any polls that really captured the lay of the field. But essentially, former mayor, Dennis Kucinich, which uh, you might have... He's back. He's back. I know, I know. Back yet again. For longtime listeners, you might have remembered him from the 2008 presidential election. And I'm think I'm forgetting some other bids he's also mounted since then. But he's not the only one running, of course. It's Cleveland City Council President Kevin Kelly, former Cleveland City Councilman Zach Reed, nonprofit executive Justin Bibb, Cleveland City Councilman Bashir Jones, and State Senator Sandra Williams. And essentially, this is coming from Cleveland's newspaper. All of them are in the running. There is also attorney Ross DeBello, but he hasn't quite developed the same profile as the other candidates. And I think it's going to be a question of turnout. The estimates are kind of putting it at maybe 20%. They've already gotten a lot more mail ballots than they had anticipated. I had mentioned Nina Turner's special election race earlier in Ohio. That was a low turnout affair, but was another instance in which I think they had estimated 14% turnout. It was actually 16%. So this is going to be a very close race, and it's hard to know at this point, I think, who is actually going to advance as the top two. Yeah, the coalitions here are, I think, very complicated. And even, I think, for somebody who knows Cleveland better than we do, it's been a very difficult race to handicap. So you have Kucinich who kind of made his name as a progressive or before, you know, the progressive movement was the progressive movement. Yeah, progressive before progressives yeah. really existed. Right. But he was like very dovish. He famously proposed, you know, starting a department of peace when he was running for president. But interestingly, he's really taken a conservative or at least Trumpy turn in recent years. For instance, he has expressed skepticism about the COVID vaccines. So it's really hard to see where his coalition is going to come. Is it going to be progressive? Is it going to be more conservative voters? I really don't know. Kevin Kelly, I think I would imagine will probably advance. He has the endorsement of the outgoing mayor. And it's also really interesting because he and Kucinich are both white candidates. And a lot of the other candidates, I think maybe all of them are black. Um, and so they could split the black vote. And Cleveland is a predominantly black city. So that could be interesting if Cleveland has a white mayor despite that. And then in terms of progressive versus establishment, Kelly is one of the more establishment figures with his kind of institutional Support. And then the two progressives in the race, the kind of true progressives, non Kucinich division, seem to be Justin Bibb and Bashir Jones. And maybe they'll advance and, and maybe they won't. And again, maybe it'll be a progressive versus establishment race, or maybe it'll be establishment versus establishment, or maybe it'll be establishment versus whatever Dennis Kucinich is. So this is kind of a weird race where there's like not much to say because there's so many candidates and we don't actually have any idea where this is headed. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot to say. You know, there's a lot of sound and fury, but signifying nothing. We'll get back to you on Wednesday, I guess. We are going to do a reaction podcast to the California gubernatorial recall. So maybe we can also check back in on these races as well. Before we wrap up, let's move on to the House primary in Wyoming. That election is not tomorrow. But of course, there was an interesting new update to talk about, which is that Trump has long said that he's going to endorse an opponent of Representative Liz Cheney. Of course, Cheney voted for impeachment, has been a frequent critic of Trump's anti-democratic tendencies. And so Trump announced his endorsement for Harriet Hageman last week. She is an attorney and former GOP party chair in the state. So to what extent do we expect Trump's endorsement to shape this race? I think it'll shape it a good amount. There's kind of this existential debate about does Trump's endorsement matter 
does it actually move votes or does he just endorse people who are already strong to pad his record? And I think there's truth in both of those things. You know, we've seen examples of both. I think this is a case probably where you would expect him to move some votes. The issue was that there are many challengers, I'm not, actually not even sure how many at this point, to Cheney. And the more challengers, of course, that run against her, the more likely it is that she wins with like 30% of the vote or something like that. And, you know, the kind of anti-Trump base in the state, so to speak, or at least the pro-Cheney base. But I think that Trump endorsing Hageman could pressure some of these other people to drop out. And the fewer challengers there are, obviously, the easier it will be for Hageman. And also, I think there are clearly some voters who are very loyal to Trump and do want to make sure they oust Cheney and don't particularly care who does it. And so I think that it'll move those votes. So I definitely think that Cheney is in more danger than she was in before. That said, I'm a little surprised that more of the other candidates haven't dropped out yet. And I think that'll be maybe the biggest test is whether Trump's endorsement has that kind of soft power within the party to Trump, no pun intended, individual politicians' ambitions. Senator Cynthia Loomis, also of Wyoming, hasn't made an endorsement at this time, but there was some reporting that when Trump made his endorsement last week that she also supported Hageman. And while her office said Loomis is not making an endorsement at this time, she believes President Trump has made an inspired choice in backing Harriet Hageman. And, you know, what's interesting about Hageman, too, is not only, you know, has she been involved in Wyoming GOP politics for a while, she was actually an advisor to Cheney at one point when she was trying to unseat then-Senator Mike Enzi. And so this is going to, I think, be a particularly nasty fight playing out. And to Nathaniel's broader point, Wyoming's a very red state. I think voters are kind of looking for a signal of who to back who isn't Cheney. And if the party establishment in the state gets behind Hageman, I think that will be quite hard for Cheney to mount a fight against. How splintered is the field at the moment? Do we have any polls in that primary? Had other candidates who are not Cheney or Hageman come out and said, you know, I'm still in this race and I'm going to fight till primary day to try to win this thing? If Cheney's Hail Mary is just a real splintering of the vote to the point that she can win with a third or less of the vote, How realistic does that seem? So, Galen, it's hard to say at this point how the field will solidify. We know that two challengers have already dropped out, given Trump's endorsement. But, you know, we looked back in March at the 10 House Republicans who had voted for impeachment. And of course, Cheney was one of those representatives and, you know, immediately had people running from her right in Wyoming against her. Now, those two candidates at the time, you know, were more fringe elements within the party. But I think an important point here is that the state party within Wyoming is a lot more conservative than even the national Republican Party that we think of. And so, To the extent that Cheney benefits from a fractured field, the field is still fractured. It could remain that way. But if we are seeing movement around Hageman, that really could then be hard for Cheney to overcome. All right. Well, we will see what happens next. As far as I understand, there are still six challengers in the race. We'll see how close it gets to a two-person race by primary day. But let's move on and talk about Biden's new vaccine mandates. Nathaniel and Sarah, we are going to say goodbye to you for that segment. But thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. So what do Americans think about the new COVID vaccine mandates? We'll get to that. But first, now streaming only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? 
Swift, The Eras Tour, Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Now streaming only on Disney+. Plus. President Biden had previously refrained from pursuing broad vaccine mandates, but that all changed last week when he announced that he was asking the Department of Labor to require all employees at companies with more than 100 employees to be vaccinated or undergo weekly testing with the prospect of penalties. He also announced that federal employees and contractors would no longer have the option of weekly testing and would instead be required to be vaccinated full stop. According to data tracked by the New York Times, 32% of eligible Americans, meaning 12 or older, have had one vaccine shot and 63% are fully vaccinated. So let's unpack Biden's new approach. And here with me to do that are senior science writer Maggie Kurth. Hello, Maggie. Hi. Also here with us is senior writer and legal reporter Amelia Thompson-DeVoe. Hey, Amelia. Hey, Galen. Maggie, you recently wrote a piece for the website shortly before these mandates came out titled Vaccine Mandates Work, But They're Messy Business. So explain that for us. How effective are vaccine mandates overall? And looking beyond just COVID for the moment. Right. The data we have is really not from COVID on this, obviously. The data is mostly coming from 40 years plus of school vaccine mandates for childhood diseases, right? So the things that we vaccinate kids for all the time, measles, mumps, rubella, polio, all of that stuff. And that's something that has been around in various ways for a really, really long time. Like the first school vaccine mandates started popping up in the 19th century for smallpox, which was the only vaccine available at that time. And more sort of got added over time. But they haven't been a linear thing. So if you look back at the history of the 20th century, you had a period of time in the 1920s and early 30s where states were actually removing vaccine requirements, largely because smallpox wasn't as big of an issue anymore. The strain of smallpox that was spreading changed in the late 19th century and early 20th century and became one that was less deadly. And a lot of places actually removed smallpox mandates, and some states even legislated against there being any possibility for smallpox vaccination mandates. So you saw that happen. You saw those states have outbreaks when they actually repealed those things. And vaccine mandates came back again in the 50s and 60s. But it really wasn't until the 1970s when we were having a lot of measles outbreaks around the U.S. that you started to get the kind of across-the-board, nationwide, all-in school vaccine requirements that we all grew up with understanding vaccine requirements to be. And that actually grew out of the kind of stuff that we look to as evidence of the effectiveness of vaccine mandates. So you were having situations where like the city of Texarkana, which is half in Texas and half in Arkansas, and there was a measles outbreak and the Arkansas side had a vaccine mandate for school children and the Texas side did not. And there are these maps that you can go look at where 90% of the outbreak cases were on the Texas side. And it's stuff like that that started leading a lot of states to adopt these much more stringent vaccine mandates for school. Just seeing that effectiveness in action 
We can also see this with the United States and Canada. Canada's never had the kind of school vaccine mandates that we do. And they have a significantly lower vaccination rate than the United States now. As the school vaccine mandates went into place over the course of the 20th century, you know, you saw vaccine rates among school kids go up. You saw cases of measles go down. So in the 1970s, there were tens of thousands of cases of measles every year. And in 1983, it was down to 2,000. By the time you got to the 1990s to the early 2000s, when there were vaccination rates higher than 90%, in 2005, measles infected 66 people in the United States. So we can really see evidence of as we require vaccine mandates for kids, more kids get vaccinated and the cases of these diseases go way down. Maggie, part of what you describe in your piece is that there are different ways of implementing vaccine mandates that influences how ultimately effective they are. And I should say, by the way, readers should go check out the piece on 538.com. It's really good. You know, what are the kinds of things that make a vaccine mandate more or less effective? Because sometimes you can mandate a vaccine, but people just say, okay, well, I'm not really interested if I don't want to get vaccinated and I'm still not getting vaccinated. So I think one of the things that I really took away from doing this reporting is that vaccine mandates work, but they're not just a thing that you can kind of turn on and forget and walk away from. One of the things that people have found over the years is that you need some kind of enforcement mechanism at times, whether that be as simple as actually having the funding for someone to be going through all the records in the schools and holding families in a space of like, okay, we're giving you some time to catch up on these, but you actually have to get caught up on these or your kid can't come to school. Like that takes money and it takes resources. And it also takes a complicated balance between different public health goals because getting everybody educated is a public good. And so there's often a lot of tension between how stringently do we enforce this thing where if we're enforcing it, kids aren't going to school. There's also a thing where over the last 40 years as we've had these more stringent school vaccine mandates, we have had different types of exemptions in place. During the 1970s when these laws were going into effect, Christian scientists did a lot of lobbying in Congress and in state legislatures to make sure that there were religious exemptions in place. And over time, for various legal reasons, those have kind of blossomed into philosophical exemptions. That's kind of just a broader, I don't want to do this. Some of those are easier to get. Some of them are harder to get. Generally speaking, the mandates work better if they are harder to get. Although some researchers I talked to actually thought that exemptions should still be in place, just harder to get, because giving people who really, 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 really don't want a vaccine some kind of outlet for those feelings can keep them from then turning it into a big public outcry. Yeah. I mean, this makes me wonder, you mentioned the legal ramifications. Amelia, what do we know about the constitutionality of vaccine mandates, period, and maybe even some of the vaccine mandates that Biden announced last week. 
Yeah, so there have been some legal cases about vaccine mandates in the past. There hasn't been a ton. And what's really different about what Biden is doing is that it's a federal mandate. And that's something new. The cases that we've seen in the past are about what the states can do. But that being said, just as is the Supreme Court, the courts have had to confront these questions that are really fundamental to, I think, the fight that we're going to see over this mandate in the past, which is this balance between how much personal personal freedom do you have on the one hand, and how much power does the government have to compel behavior that is in service of public health? So the big Supreme Court precedent that's relevant here is a case from the early 20th century involving a smallpox vaccine mandate that had been mandated by the state of Massachusetts. And in that case, the Supreme Court basically said, no, you do not have an absolute right to not get vaccinated if it's in the interest of public health. There is a quote from Justice John Marshall Harlan that I'll just read quickly. He wrote that the Constitution does not import an absolute right in each person to be at all times and in all circumstances wholly freed from restraint. And he continued, real liberty for all could not exist under the operation of a principle which recognizes the right of each individual person to use his own, whether in respect of his person or his property, regardless of the injury that may be done to others. So basically this idea that like we live in a society together and yes, you have rights, but you do not have the right to go out and do whatever you want if it's going to significantly harm other people. And in this case, there was a significant public health interest in the government saying that people had to get vaccinated against smallpox. Okay, so fast forward to now, those principles I think are very much part of the debate that we're seeing. The specific legal questions are going to be somewhat different. And it's a little bit unclear how it's going to play out now because what Biden has basically done with regard to the workplace mandate is he has directed a branch of the federal government to put forward what are essentially workplace safety regulations saying that larger businesses have to require their employees to either get vaccinated or get weekly COVID tests. Maggie mentioned the issue of enforcement. That's a huge issue here. It is not at all clear what these rules are going to actually look like when they come out of the agency or how they're going to be enforced. For the people who want to go for the testing option, who are going to pay for those tests is a big question. So there are a lot of question marks. There's already been a lot of political posturing. We've seen many Republican governors coming out and saying they're going to fight this. In reality, the legal challenges that would stick to this, I think, would be coming from companies who would be saying essentially that the agency doesn't have the authority to implement a mandate like this. Whether that'll be successful, you know, we'll have to see. The law that the agency would be operating under does give pretty broad authority to establish basically emergency rules that are designed to make workplaces safer. And so the argument will be something along the lines of, Get this vaccine mandate or this testing requirement is necessary to ensure that when people go back to work, that it's safe for them to do so. So we'll just have to see how it plays out. It will be a little while before those rules come out. So what Biden has done is sort of essentially said, this is a thing we're going to do. And then we're going to actually have to see what it looks like on paper. Amelia mentioned some of the political posturing here. Maggie, you had also mentioned that there were trade-offs that needed to be considered essentially in 
in whether or not you mandate a vaccine, how exactly you go about mandating a vaccine. Obviously, at the start, Biden said that he was not going to pursue this path. What are the different trade-offs being considered here? Well, I think one of the trade-offs is that every time you set in place one of these mandates, you have loopholes that then you kind of have to go back and fight your way through. So California, five or six years ago, started eliminating their vaccine exemptions after the big outbreak of measles that happened at Disney World in 2015. And eliminating exemptions for religious reasons, for philosophical reasons. And so only leaving in place medical. Only leaving in place medical. Yeah. And one of the things that they found was that led to a sudden surge in medical exemptions. In fact, there were cases with a handful of doctors who were writing the vast majority of these medical exemptions, and they were often anti-vaccine activists. And so that then led to California having to set up a whole a whole bureaucratic infrastructure basically to decide what things could be approved as medical exemptions and to look at each case individually. And that's another one of those situations where like, well, now you have time, you have money, you have bureaucratic infrastructure getting added to this whole system. And that is something that they're still fighting their way through six years later. And has it increased homeschooling? Yeah, it's also increased homeschooling. So Maggie, I'm curious what you think it means that this is going to be on businesses, on corporations, on employers, rather than on schools. Because, you know, on the one hand, I've been seeing some reporting, you know, and this kind of intuitively makes sense to me, that some employers are kind of relieved by this, that they had some workers who didn't want to get vaccinated and they were kind of navigating this tricky area of not wanting to alienate their employees or possibly have people quit in a really tight labor market, but really wanting them to get vaccinated for the safety of the workplace. And so now they can say... Oh, sorry, federal government says you have to get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Not my fault. On the other hand, there's the question of who's going to pay for the tests if people don't want to get vaccinated. It's not clear to me how companies will enforce this. Where are you even going to get the tests? I mean, like those are the tests are definitely like falling into that supply shortage thing. A friend of mine literally bought the last rapid test in Duluth the other day. Um, So like (laughs) this is like the name of a novel or something. Right. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like this is not it's not a straightforward solution, is it? Like the exemption that they've set up. Is not necessarily an easy one. And in other countries, though, it has been. Like you go and look at Europe and people are getting rapid tests for a dollar in Germany and places like that. And ours are like 25 bucks each, $18 each. And even if you want to be taking these rapid tests voluntarily, that's something that like a lot of schools are recommending that you do for your unvaccinated kids right now. Getting a hold of them and affording them is not an easy proposition. But I guess setting aside the supply chain issues, which are super real, I guess I'm wondering what you think of the private sector's ability to help enforce something like this if they're on board with it compared to something like public schools. Because you were talking about the time and the resources that are needed to actually ensure that people are following these mandates. Do you think that private businesses are in a in a better place? Are they in a worse place? Like, does it make a difference that instead of being able to send your kid to school, it's your job on the line? I think the ethical quandaries are similar. I don't know that the work thing is that much different from the schooling thing in that respect. And I also don't know that it puts you in a better position or not. 
because the school enforcement and actually like what is mandated and where varies wildly still. You have some things that are MMR is you know, required across the board, all states, but you get down to vaccines that are not as effective. So like vaccines that aren't like your 90% effective and vaccines that are politically controversial are not required everywhere for schools. I think probably a really good example for this is actually the flu, which is an effective vaccine, but it's not a wildly effective vaccine, as we all know. And there's only six states in New York City that require that for school. Only Virginia and Hawaii require the HPV vaccine. So I think that there's going to be a lot of similar up and downs. Like if you have a boss, if the owners of the company are anti-vaccine, don't want people to get vaccinated for COVID, they're probably not going to enforce that very strongly. If that's not a primary concern for them, if it's just not a major thing they're super worried about, they're probably not going to be devoting the resources necessary to like actually mandating that or worrying too much about the trade-offs between do we lose this worker or not. I think there's likely to be just a lot of difference from one company to another, and some are going to care more and some aren't. When it comes to the politics of all of this, Amelia, you had mentioned that Republicans were already talking about lawsuits and challenging this. We heard, you know, a lot of pushback from Republican elected leaders last week. What does the polling show? What do Americans want when it comes to vaccine mandates? Well, there's a new CNN poll that is showing the public is split on the question of whether requiring proof of vaccination for everyday activities is an acceptable thing to do. The mandate itself just happened. So this was polling that was conducted um, before the mandate came out. But, you know, I think it's pretty comparable. And I think that jives with what we know about how Americans are feeling about this generally, that they're really divided about a lot of these solutions and support for the mandates, according to the CNN poll, it has risen since April, sort of varying a little bit depending on the context you're talking about. So a little different for students, for office workers, for going to the grocery store. But, you know, in general, it seems like folks are maybe getting a little more supportive of them, but still pretty divided. All right. Well, let's leave things there. Thank you, Amelia and Maggie. Thanks, Galen. Thanks, Galen. My name is Galen Druk. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. Claire Bidegary Curtis is on audio editing, and Emma Riley is our intern. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon. <laughs>